You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. In Ezekiel chapter 37, starting in verse 15 and going to the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a single stick and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, in all the house of Israel associated with him. Then join them together into a single stick so that they become in, in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you explain to us what you mean by these things? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah. I will make them into a single stick, so that they become one in my hand. When the sticks you have written on are in your hand, and in full view of the people, tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations and will not, no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statues and obey them. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. When my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, good morning. King's Cross. I am Chad, one of the pastors. Of course, I am excited to be here and hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving week with family and friends. Um, an enjoyable time of eating all that you can, comfortably, responsibly, <laughs> enjoying some time with family. And now we come together to begin uh, what is Advent season. We call the Advent season, one where we look back and we remember the advent of our king as a baby so many years ago. But we also look forward to the advent of his kingdom and finality 
the future kingdom, the one where he will make all things right and new. And so in this first uh, week of Advent, actually, if you're familiar with Advent wreaths, as we have one set up here with the candles, uh, the first candle is uh, the hope of prophecy, or the, I'm sorry, the hope candle, the candle of hope, or also uh, a prophet's candle, often described that way. One in which we remember and are reminded that God has beforehand promised so much to his people and so many blessings, but even in the midst of that time, there was waiting. And waiting, waiting can be hard. And we're waiting. We're in a time of waiting. Even now, because while Christ has come once before, uh, we know that he is to come again and make things new. And so as we begin to pray, uh, or as we begin this message this morning, I'm, we're going to look at a text a little different. We've been in Acts. We've been uh, wa- walking through the book of Acts. But we're going to take a side step to look at very specific passages leading up to Christmas Eve and then also uh, finally worshiping the king on Christmas Eve in which we look, uh, look at the king of kings. Who's this promised king today? This is what we're asking today. And we're looking at a passage in Ezekiel you can turn to, as was just read for us, in Ezekiel chapter 37, which um, is a prophecy from Ezekiel to people who are struggling for hope. And so I'm going to pray that the Spirit would be with us this morning as we look at this text and would teach us and guide us. Father, thank you for your kindness as we get to celebrate, we get to celebrate your Son, Thank you for the grace you've demonstrated to us in him. And Father, I ask that you remind us fresh and anew this morning of the hope that we have in Christ, of the hope that we have in you, and the hope that you've given us in this King of Kings. Lord, that where we have struggled to trust, that we trust more deeply. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Human hope is a, a frail thing. Um whether it's health or loss of life, just feeling like you don't have things figured out, the uncertainty of day-to-day, or even the uncertainty of figuring out other people. The other people in our life can give us a sense of hopelessness when we can't fix things for them, much less fix things for ourselves. And the passage that we're looking at today is a passage in Ezekiel that you may not be familiar with. I don't know if anybody had it on their reading plan and read through Ezekiel this month. That's awesome if you did. Uh, It comes at the back end of a passage, um, 37, chapter 37, that some, many in the church might be familiar with, the, the Valley of Dry Bones. If you're familiar with Ezekiel going out and commanding the dry bones to live and life gets breathed into them. But the reason that we're looking at this passage in particular is, well, first and foremost, that it is very much so speaking towards the hope that God wants to give his people. If you're not familiar with what's going on for the, for, um, the people of God in this particular passage, uh, they have been uh, exiled. They, they have actually been captured and taken into captivity in Babylon. And Ezekiel is a priest who is sitting by a river and gets a vision and be- continues to get a word from the Lord and begins to continue to deliver that prophecy and follow and obey after what God's commanded. It's a very interesting book. There's several different things. He's usually doing um, visual 
illustrations. He's just made to like tell stories. Like he has to build like a mini scale uh, Jerusalem in the middle of the city and then like cut off all his hair and like throw it up in the air and cut it with a sword and, and then throw some other hair over here and burn it. It's all kinds of stuff. He has to dig a hole out of the side of his house and move all of his furniture out into the street. And every time he does it, the people are supposed to ask him. I mean, he's just doing weird stuff. They're like, oh, there's a whole Ezekiel's doing something today. <laughs> and every time they're supposed to ask him, what is this about? And he says, this is what God wants to show you. And so in this particular case, it's not, indif- uh, not different. Um, he has given a word from the Lord, and he needs to deliver that. And he does it through a visual illustration with sticks. The thing I want to draw out for this in particular is that God meets his people where they are in hopelessness, and he gives them hope. And we have to remember that the people are waiting for a long time. Many of these people in, well, everyone in this camp do not see the fulfillment of what they're told. We don't even see a lot of the fulfillment of what is finally made new in what Ezekiel talks about. But what we want to focus on and recognize is that they are promised the Messiah. They are promised healing. They are promised blessing. And we want to see and look at this passage and see where God has made those promises. And what I want to put before you is that Jesus is that promised king. He's that one who draws God's people from the nations. He's the one that cleanses them of all their sin. And he's the one that restores them to God. So let's look first and foremost at the beginning of this chapter and see what old Ezekiel is needing to do today. So Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a single stick and write on it belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him. Then join them together into a single stick so they become one in the hand. And when your people ask you, Won't you explain to us what you mean by these things? Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah. I will make them into a single stick so they become one in my hand. So I need to make a little bit of a background for what's going on here because there's sticks, there's tribes, there's Joseph, maybe you've heard of his name, Ephraim, maybe you're not familiar with him. But I want to tell you a little bit of background on where we are and why we got to put six together. Okay? And then we'll get we're moving. So Ezekiel, I remember I told you they've been captive and brought captive out into Babylon. Not the first time. In particular, he's talking about two different sets of tribes because before this occurred in Israel, Israel was a divided kingdom. It became a divided kingdom because Solomon, who's David's son, led the people into idolatry. He started to chase after women from other countries, and because they wanted to worship other idols and other, other gods, he, he said, cool, that's fine, let's do that. And God cast judgment on Solomon. He preserved a small portion of Israel for David's family line because David was promised that. And so Judah, we see here, Judah and the rest of the Israelites, which is Benjamin and Judah, they're known as the southern kingdom, stayed with Solomon's family. They went under Rehoboam, is what his name, a lot of names look, sound the same. The, the rest of the ten tribes, which is Joseph, Ephraim, all those people, the rest of the ten, they went under a king named Jeroboam. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. They like to rhyme, I don't know. But regardless, 
That's what's going on here. Now, not only is the kingdom divided, which is not good. God's people shouldn't be divided. And it's because of judgment. It's because of idolatry. But also, they've been cast out and captured and taken off into Babylon. And even more than that, the Israelites have now recently found out in chapter 33 of Ezekiel that the siege on Jerusalem has ended because they captured the city and they destroyed the temple. So imagine, if you will, you're in your homeland. You have been raided, captured, taken beyond. They're living in a refugee camp. And then you find out that they have now captured the rest of your hometown and burned down everything that matters to you. That's where Israel is right now. They're hopeless. How do we get back? We're God's people. Has he forgotten us? It's why in the beginning of this chapter, when he says, look over out of the valley of the dry bones and speak life into them, the dry bones speak and say, we are dry bones. Can we live? Because they're hopeless. And they don't see an end. They don't see an answer. And in the next portions of this passage, the New American Commentary on this, and Cooper tells us that there are 13 promises that God gives his people in the midst of their hopelessness. But what I want to do is I want to look specifically at six kind of categories of those promises. We're not going to go through all 13. I told my wife last night, it's like, we're going to have one part, 13 subparts. No, we're not going to do that. But we are going to look broadly at those six ways in which God has promised to restore and give hope to a hopeless people. And the first is this. He has promised to reunite his people under one king, verses 20 and 22. When the sticks you have written on are in your hand and in full view of the people, tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land and the mountain of Israel, and one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. He's promising them unity. He's promising them as God's people, I will bring you back together. Notice the number of times I am going to take the Israelites. I will gather them. I will make them one nation. I am going to make it happen. And so God is promising in his own power that all of God's people who are scattered Some scattered by no cause of their own. Your parents could have been scattered. You could have been second, third generation. You show up in another nation, and you've heard about this great city of Jerusalem that used to have the temple and where you worship and where God's people were supposed to be, and now you're stuck as a captive in another place. And God tells Ezekiel, I'm going to bring them all back together. The second thing, B, he promises to save his people from their sin and restore his relationship with them. Verse 23, they will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them, and then they will be my people, and I will be their God. Like Solomon allowed the people to do, the ten tribes in Israel had gone off after other idols and other gods. They placed their trust in things other than the most high God of Israel, the one who has made the promises to his people. And they felt the weight of that sin before God, and they saw the evil and idolatry that was committed by fellow Israelites, and they felt no hope, but God said, I will save you from your sin, and I will cleanse them, and they will then begin to be my people again. The third thing he promises 
is to lead his people to keep his law. 24, my servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances, and they will keep my statutes and obey them. He's promising them to, to set a just and righteous ruler over them to keep them in his ways, to follow and obey those statutes that he has set before them that they failed so often to follow. He says they will follow them and they will keep my statutes. This is a promise that's also given elsewhere in Ezekiel. And he gives some teeth to that because he also says, I will take their heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. I will put my law in their heart so that they will follow after me. And so he tells them, in his spirit placed in them, they will obey me. The fourth thing is that he says he will establish a permanent covenant of peace. Verse 25 and 26, they will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where our, your ancestors live. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be a permanent covenant with them. Remember, they are an embattled and captive people. They're strangers in a foreign land. They have very little control over what happens to them. Their temple has been destroyed. And God promises them a covenant of peace. That there will be a permanent covenant with my people. Fifth, he promises to establish his sanctuary and dwell with his people. Verse 26b and 27. I will establish and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Interestingly enough, the beginning of Ezekiel, when he is in Babylon sitting by the river, his first vision, you may have heard of this, he talks about wheels inside of wheels and a throne. He's describing a throne, which is essentially the glory of God present in Babylon. And he sees it, and he's like, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in Jerusalem. And God's presence was said to have lifted and left Jerusalem because even though they still had the temple at the beginning of Ezekiel, that they were, they were steeped in idolatry, and they weren't worshiping him. And so he, he withdrew his presence from his people. And then they were captured, and they were taken by the enemy. And God is telling them here, I will establish and multiply you. I will bless you in this new place, and I will place my sanctuary with you. The temple was built, the tabernacle, as a place for God to dwell in the midst of his people. And in that place, he says, my dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will again have my glory rest with my people. And finally, F, the sixth, the sixth category of promises here is that he will make his people a testimony to the nations of his saving grace. 28, when my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. You will be set up as a testimony of my saving grace. The nations will look at you and know I sanctify Israel. So now the question has to be asked, for this particular case, we read this and we say, okay, this is Israel, this is Israel, this is Israel. And we don't want to make the mistake of saying everything that God promises in the New Testament is something we adopt for ourselves or for our 
our country as a whole. And that's actually one of the bigger errors. If you want to be, ever look in the Old Testament, never assume Israel's promises are now America's promises, for example, as a na- on a national level, okay? But we can look at these and say, is there an evidence that God is making promises that go beyond just what we would think as physical Israel by blood, by descendant? Is there testimony to that being the case? And what I would say as we look at these six promises he gives Israel, that God fulfills those promises in Christ, begins to fulfill those promises, and will bring them to completion in him. And if you're sitting here today and you're not Jewish by descent, then you're in the church and you are under the promises of Christ. That God will restore what was lost from the beginning. Because remember, remember, in the garden, when evil enters the world, there is no Jerusalem. There is no Israel. There's only God with his people. And he promises them that I will send one who descends from woman. He said, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. He says, what is done and what is evil will be, will be reversed by the one I will send. And there's no offspring of, of, of Abraham at that time. No, later, Abraham comes, and when Abraham comes, he calls Abraham, and he says in Genesis 12, 1 through 4, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, whom, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise to Abraham extends beyond Abraham's family, but to all the families of the earth. And then again in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Paul hooks on to that when he talks to the Galatian church who are not Jewish. And he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then again, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say go to all Jerusalem. He says, go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus tells and commands his people, not his disciples, not just to take the good news of the gospel to just those people who are Israel by blood, but to go to all nations, to take the promises of God beyond the walls of Jerusalem, to the world. And in Revelation, in chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, we see the culmination of all those people who are now brought into God's family. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. So what I'm arguing today for you as we look at Ezekiel is that the hope that he gives his people is not a hope that terminates on Israel alone. What I mean by that is that while God works in his people to bring blessing to the world, the blessing is for all nations. And that hope that he extends in, uh, in, a, in a lonely refugee camp to his people continues on and finds culmination in the birth of Christ. And that we as people who aren't of Israel, can get adopted into that hope. We're invited into his family. Look with me back at those passages, and let's look again and see how Christ fulfills every one of these things and extends them to the world. It's a hope for the world. First, he reunites his people under one king. Remember, he says, I'm going to take Israel from all the nations where they've gone, and I will gather them from all around, and I will bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation and one land on the mountain of Israel with one king who will rule over all of them. Jesus, notice this. God tells them, not that you're going to come just out of Babylon, but he says, I will draw my people from all nations. And, and don't miss this. When we looked at Acts 2, we saw the beginning of God drawing his people from all nations. Remember, when they started at Pentecost to preach the good news of Christ, we saw that all the Jews were staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven, and when the sound occurred, a crowd came together, and they were confused. They were astounded, and they were amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these people speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? There were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who lived in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongue. When Christ came and was born 600 years after Ezekiel, God began in him through the cross to draw the nations to him to bring hope to all the nations and to reunite them under one king. Under one king. In saving his people from their sin, that statement in verse 23, where he says, I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. This is a very interesting statement. Do you know what's unique about this statement? There's actually a whole paper written on this. There's probably more than one, but I found one cool one. I'll, I'll share the article if you want to read it. It's an academic paper. It says, I will, it says, I will save my people from their sins. It's a, it's a paper analyzing the influences of Ezekiel 36, 28 to 29, and 37, 23, two times in Ezekiel, on Matthew 121 by Nicholas Petrowski. In his introduction, he says this, the first gospel, Matthew 121, Matthew, begins with a startling declaration that Jesus will save his people from their sins. There are only, get this, there are only two verses in the entire Old Testament where salvation is from an internal moral enemy. What that means is there are only two places that God says, I will save you from your sins. Every other one is from an outside force. 
I will save you from your bondage, from your captivity. I will save you from Egypt. I will save you. But only two places, and they're both in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 29 reads, I will save you from all your defilements. And Ezekiel 37, 23 says, I will save them from all their assemblies in which they sinned. All other uses of save in the Old Testament regard historically identifiable oppressors external to a group or an individual. Given this rarity, Matthew's declaration at 121 that Jesus will save his people from their sins is extraordinary on a semantic level. Should this direct interpreters uh, back to these two texts in the Old Testament reflect on the meaning of Jesus' name and calling? If so, the reader's surprise is doubled by the observation that in Ezekiel, it's Yahweh who saves. But the evangelist asserts that Jesus will accomplish this task. Matthew's Jewish, he knows the Old Testament. And when he looks back, he saw that Yahweh said he'll save. But when Matthew makes a declaration, he says Jesus is the one that accomplishes the task. So in Christ, he saves his people from their sins. The third thing we saw was that he led his people to keep his law. My servant David will be king over them. There will be one shepherd for all of them, and that shepherd is Christ. They will follow my ordinances and they will keep my statutes and obey. Ezekiel 32nd, uh, 36, as I mentioned earlier, says the same thing in a different way, but puts a little bit of flesh on it, if you will, where they says, he says that I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes. In John 3, 3 through 8, Jesus says this very thing, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, who he's talking to in this context, says, how can someone be born again when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? That's crazy. Your mom's not wanting that. I don't want that. He says, how can it happen? Well, Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone's born of water, Ezekiel 36 says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And then Jesus says, by water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Ezekiel 36 says, I will cleanse you from all impurities in your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, aren't you a teacher of the law and don't know this? Unless you are born again of water, in the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom. Because whatever is born of flesh and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you this. You must be born again. Ezekiel is pointing forward and John says, Jesus tells us, this is what needs to happen and I'm going to do it. I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh and I will give you a new heart in the spirit Fourth, we saw that he establishes a permanent covenant of peace. Now, this is interesting because it doesn't get fulfilled anywhere close to this timeline. Yeah, the people go back to Jerusalem, but actually it's only Judea who does that. They're not united back with the rest of the tribes. And in this particular case, it's a covenant of peace that's permanent. There's no way that happens in this lifetime. That is future. 
to be permanent peace to go on forever. And Paul in Colossians, he writes to the church, he says this about Christ. He said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So even as Jesus was born, and we look back and celebrate what was done in Christ, we recognize, as Paul does, that the peace that God brings must come through the cross. It came through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Because as he's born, he was born with a purpose. He was born as a human being, God in the flesh, but he was born to die. And what Paul tells us is that the peace that God brings, the permanent covenant of peace between God's people and between God, is born out, made peace through the blood that Christ shed on the cross. Next, we saw that he establishes his sanctuary and he dwells with his people. He says, I will establish and multiply them. I'll bless them and I'll set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, there are many that look at this passage and I don't know where you land on this and I'm not trying to make a specific declaration of end times theology at all here, but that, that many who look to see the physical, absolute, necessary establishment of a new temple in order for the end times to begin as they would call him. That's a whole other conversation. But what I would argue, or what I would at least present to you is this. Based on scriptural evidence that we see here, there is no need for a physical temple. Because what God says here is, I will set my sanctuary among them. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God. He actually makes a reference back to Leviticus 26 here. In verse 12, where Moses tells the people that, I, that God will walk among you and be your God, and you will be his people. And what's unique about that is while these two passages talk about God walking with their people, and they talk about a sanctuary, and they talk about the temple, and, and there's no reason for God's people to believe that it would happen any other way. I'm not judging them for this. They would, they would assume that a tabernacle and a temple would be set up, and God would dwell with them in that way. But Paul looks back to this, and he writes to the Corinthians, and they don't have a temple. And the Corinthians are just a people who are following hard after Jesus. It's a church that came together, and they are not Jewish. And he says in chapter 6 of his second letter to them, What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he quotes Leviticus and Ezekiel, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. So in Christ, God has brought to fulfillment the fact that we are no longer looking at a temple and a place to worship in because we need to be there to be with God, but that God has promised to walk with his people in his people, that you are a holy place. As Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. He presently lives with his people and in his people and wherever you walk. Remember how we talk about the light of God in Exodus? If you look and see the, 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 the glory of God residing on the temple and it goes in the tabernacle in the wilderness with his people. Now the glory of God resides on and in his people. So, so get this. It isn't a place in Jerusalem that we need to go to to worship. Christ told the Samaritan woman, you don't go to this hill or to this hill, but there will be a day when you worship in spirit and in truth. That in us, 
God resides, and that worship goes with us. So when you went to visit your family in another place for Thanksgiving, the glory of God went with you and was in you. And when you had those really uncomfortable talks about politics were coming up, the glory of God was with you, and the Spirit was in you. And maybe he was telling you just to keep your mouth shut for a little bit, right? right? Use discernment. Seek peace. And, and when you see God working in somebody and changing them, that's the glory of God in his people making them something new. Day after day, week after week, month after month, throughout our lifetime, that we don't go to a place in the temple to worship God. He is with his people. And that's why when Matthew 1.23 quotes Isaiah, he says, The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That the God of glory came to be with his people and lives with his people. <laughs> and finally, we saw that he makes his people a testimony to the nation's of his saving grace. When my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. And this one is interesting because now we look and see if God's dwelling place, if our body is the temple of the living God, then we are a testimony of his saving grace. See, the end of Ezekiel points to a restored sanctuary. The chapter ends with, or the book ends with an elaborate description. I'm talking about to the feet and inches of this sanctuary. A vision of a rebuilt temple. This is often why people point and say that God's temple must be rebuilt because it says it's going to be eight and a half by, excuse me, eight and a half by, by three inches and 81 feet by this. And it gives very specific detail. But the reality is that John saw that future fulfillment and final fulfillment of Ezekiel because he uses language from Ezekiel from in Revelation all over the place. Because it's not ultimately about a temple like we see a building, but it's the restoration of what was lost in Eden. That, that, that heaven and earth came together in the garden where God walked with his people and now what we see today that in Christ, God now walks again with his people. And the future fulfillment is that glorious day when all things that are broken, where hopelessness resides, where pain is felt, where loss is sharp, where we struggle, where we have difficulty, that God makes all things new and restores that perfect fullness where it was started. What's interesting about this is that 600 years, roughly, after Ezekiel wrote these words, that there was a little baby born and a manger. Ezekiel walked the streets with these two sticks with Jerusalem and Judea and Israel, and he's like, I don't know what he's doing. He's putting them together. People are asking questions. He's like street theater. But he's telling them about the promises of God. 600 years later, a baby is born. God in the flesh. And at 33 years old, some Roman craftsman took two sticks and put them together into a cross. And on that cross, God unites his family. 
on that cross, God brings together and blesses his people, and he dwells with them. Through the work of Christ on those two sticks on a cross and a cross, God has made all these promises to be true. He has taken what was hopeless and given us hope. And even in the midst of where we are now, we are in a circumstance where all these things have begun to become true, but I want to recognize they're not yet fully fulfilled. Because even as on that cross Christ took on the sin of the world, the work's not complete. We still walk these streets living in a broken world as a testimony of his saving grace to a lost world to nations dying, not knowing what was done in that city of Jerusalem on that cross and the hope that was born in, in a little manger. And so as people of God, we don't look at this and say, great, these are God's people. They're, they're getting this testimony. They're not going, awesome, Ezekiel, tomorrow it's all fulfilled. It was 600 years before Christ even came. It was 2,000 years ago. And we still live here in this world. And so I want to encourage you is this. The promises that God gave, the fulfillment of those begun in Christ, have not yet fully formed. But we aren't those who sit and expect. (laughs) We are those who rest in the hope of what God has already done in Christ and look forward to what he promises to do in the future. That's where our hope rides. That's where it rests. See, being God's people today doesn't mean that we escape loss and pain in this life, but it does mean that we are trusting in the one who restores and heals. Being God's people today is not having it all together. I sure don't. I'm a hot mess. Do you see me? It's not having it all together, but it is trusting in the one who sees us and our imperfections. He loves us, and he picks up and puts together broken things. Being God's people today is not knowing all the answers, but it's trusting in the one who does. And being God's people today is not fixing other people, but it's bringing them to the perfect king who knows all hearts and he sanctifies. That's the hope we rest in today. That's the hope that we saw fulfilled in Christ. Little town of Bethlehem. And the hope that God began to fulfill on that cross. Two sticks in Jerusalem. We rest in that hope. Pray with me.